You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey! Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. The aim of this brand is to challenge conventional thinking and to give you the tools required to live your damn best life and to become the person that you have always wanted to be. Today on the show, we are joined by Alessia Rulin, who was a star in one of Disney's most successful ever franchises. Alessia was cast as Kelsey Nielsen in High School Musical 1, 2, and 3, which as of 2019 have now been viewed more than 225 million times. As well as featuring in one of the largest Disney franchises ever, Alessia has featured in other series that you may have heard of, like CSI and Family Guy. Not bad, right? (laughs) Alessia was born four hours north of Moscow, is fluent in Russian, is trained in ballet, and is also the writer of the notable literature, Hounds of Love, which is unbound poetry, which Alessia created to document some heartbreak which she went through in her life. In this episode, we delve into following an unconventional career path, how to bounce back from failure, how to deal with negative self-talk and negative thoughts, how to take action when you don't feel like it, how Alessia handles the uncertainty and unpredictability of the acting business, which, by the way, is also highly relevant to entrepreneurs, And also we look at how Alessia handled devastating heartbreak in her life. This was a beautiful episode and I hope you enjoy this conversation with the brilliant Alessia Rulin. Thank you so much for having me, gentlemen. It's such a pleasure. So I'd love to delve into your story because you had such an interesting start to life growing up in Russia and then move into the U.S. What was that part of your life like? Well, I'm 33, almost 34 now. So I moved to America when I was eight. I grew up in communist Russia, which I had a really good experience with. No one talks about that, but I actually loved communism as a child because everything was equal and I didn't know what poverty meant because everyone was at the same level. And I didn't grow up in the city. I grew up four hours north of Moscow in a little village of like 12 houses, no under plumbing. And it was just fun and safe. And I went to every ballet and every theater production in Moscow because it was free. So by the time... I was a child, like a little kid at five, I knew who Tchaikovsky was and Beethoven and I had seen the Bolshoi ballerinas dance and it was really incredible. And we had universal healthcare. So as a child, my experience was quite 
wonderful. And I grew up in the woods, and so my day was like running around, half naked in the woods, eating berries, helping my mom on the farm. Like it was really kind of magical. Um, and but obviously now as an adult, and I look back, I, I see the hardships that my parents must have gone through, and how complicated that was. And even though they gave me this blissful childhood, the reality of of being in communism and, and living through that time uh, was so difficult for them. And when I felt the change when communism fell, for sure, <laughs> that was horrible. So I was born in 86. So I, by the time we left um, Russia, when I was, it was 1992, right when the wall it fell in 89, right? And we had started getting more freedom to be able to leave by 1992 and the Cold War ended. Then I really felt the, the shift of the government and the shift of people's mentalities and just the struggle of being human under such a, a hard um, government and a lack of control and lack of voice. So and it definitely made me who I am today And then, in that sense. And then I moved to America. I was eight, and we moved to Utah, which you're like, why? <laughs> well, now I have to cough, guys. I'm so sorry. <clears throat> Alicia's sick. <laughs> okay. Um, my parents are taxidermists, so if you know what that is, like they stuff animals for a living. Like, rawr. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how did you adapt to coming from Russia to school? Did you have any difficulties adapting to a different culture? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I didn't speak English until I moved to America. And I also grew up in the woods. I was this, like, wild child. So understanding, like, oh, well, you have to sit. I'm like, Why? It's sunny outside. I didn't understand the concept of recess or why I had to sit throughout the day at daytime hours of the day in a in a room. It made no sense to me. So those things were really challenging. Um, and kids were quite mean. And up to this point, I didn't really understand what like being poor or poverty was. So people were like, oh, and like this materialistic obsession that we have in America with buying new things and looking cool and whatnot and always having new and bigger and better, that was not something I grew up with or I knew anything about. So I think that was the biggest challenge. And like, oh, you only have one pair of jeans. And in my brain, I'm like, wow, I have a pair of jeans. Like, I didn't see that as a lack. I was like, sweet, you know, like, cool. Like, I didn't want more things. And seeing children, especially at that age, like first and second grade, like the first day of school and like just really like comparing it backpacks and stuff. Like that was hard. It kind of still is. I'm just like, I don't get it. <laughs> if you saw my house, it's like the most minimalistic home. It's really beautiful. And I love luxurious, sustainable like things. But you wouldn't see me in a mall being like, today's the day, Black Friday, I'm buying everything. Like I can't do it. It's weird. What you said about the jeans were there uh, makes me think – when you did move to America, which is, you know, the land of opportunity, they say, and you were, there were so many opportunities there that you, you may not have had before in, uh, in your home country. Do you think that that gave you a sort of mindset advantage in terms of, you know, finding success and, and finding what you want to do and making the most out of it? A little bit. Definitely coming to America and having more opportunities, it, it does instill a sense of promise and hope and different ideas, especially coming from a country like, like Russian communism, you know, like mm, it's a little limiting. And, but my parents never, I didn't really have like an immigrant complex in the sense of now you have to like work and go to school and be, you know, like there wasn't that pressure. Maybe because we are we from the woods and kind of like fairy hippie people. 
But my mother did always say, whatever you choose to do, be the best at it. She's like, if you are the best artist, the, like an artist, be the best artist. If you want to be a drunk, be the best. Like, don't half-ass anything. And I always thought it was really funny. She's like, if you're going to drink, then drink. If you're going to love, then love. Like, don't. It's very Russian. It's like hardcore or nothing. And I think that's what made me chase my goals and um, accomplish as much as I have in a short period of time. I just was like, and honestly, I was just like, fuck it. I'm just trying. What, what, what's going to happen? The government's not going to get mad at me here. I can start a business. It can fail. I can start another business. So there was never like this feeling of uh, mistakes are permanent or mistakes will in, in mistakes. How do I clarify this? Mistakes in an effort to try something are going to be permanent or will limit me. It was the opposite. I was just like, meh, okay. My family's like that. We moved to America. We started so many businesses. Like we moved around a lot and I like it. I like my little gypsy lifestyle. It's been good. And you know, you, you did try a lot of things, you, you know, from ballet to piano to acting. To... I never play piano, guys. I just pretend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you do a, well, there you go. It reinforces the acting bit I was talking about. <laughs> what I'm doing. I just watched Alicia Keys' music videos. As long as I like feel and look like she does, like then people will buy it. Smoke and mirrors, baby. Yeah, I mean, so you've tried you've tried so many fields, and and like you said, you've you've been successful in multiple fields. What is it about you that sort of wants to try loads of different things, and and what do you think it is about yourself that or traits that you have that give you the capacity to be good at those multiple things rather than staying in your lane, as they say? I have no idea. That's a good question. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, what are my traits that help me succeed in multiple facets? Honestly, I think I got really lucky. I believe in, you know, the universe, God, or whatever you want to call it that makes you feel comfortable. Um, and I think I asked for all of these challenges. I definitely feel like my soul asked for this specific incarnation and asked for all of these challenges and opportunities. And since I believe that, when I have an opportunity come up, I'm like, well, clearly, or a challenge, which my life has been incredibly challenging. It might look pretty on Instagram or on on my resume, right? And it is. But the reality of it is I've had more hardships than I would ever wish upon my worst enemy. Uh, so I think it's because I feel, I innately feel that I asked for this journey. And so to do anything less than 100%, it's a disservice to my soul. Does that make sense? Yeah. One of the things which we always get asked on this show is, when we bring all these amazing people like yourself on, we always get asked, how do we find out our calling? What's our life's purpose? And mm. we always say, you know, answers are a reward. Answers are a reward for doing shit. You find out answers from actually doing things. And yeah. you're a perfect example of this because you've done so many different things. I mean, you're studying economics when High School Musical was cast. I mean, they can't think of two more contrasting fields from, you know, the world of economics. So much fun. What would you say? Yeah. What would you say to someone that is looking to maybe find their calling? You know, to find out what it is that they want to do. Is it you know like you did just to try loads of different things? I mean, it depends on your personality. First, a lot of people give them anxiety if you have too many different venues open, right? And you feel a little bit like you're drowning in options. I think with technology and the, and the way that we can connect with each other now, sometimes you almost get overwhelmed with the fact that you have so many choices. Whereas before you only had like five and there's some kind of like almost like a blanket of security with that. And now there's with 
just the internet alone. You know, we have like 5,000 million options of what you can do with your life. So I would say whatever seems like not work for you, do that. Out of all of your hobbies or out of what you, you know, lights your soul on fire, whatever doesn't seem like work, but you can maybe possibly make into a financial, like, lucrative (laughs) or at least sustainable job, do that because, you know, acting, I work 16-hour days. I never see my friends, like, my friends. If I'm on set, I miss weddings. I miss a life. But I never think it's a compromise because I love it so much. I would do it if they didn't pay me. You know, like I would do it. I never complain about the hours. I love being on set. And then, oh, yeah, they pay me and I get to do stuff. Cool. That's just a bonus part of it. So I would say find the thing that you would do for free for crazy hours in this lifetime. And then try to make that a job. (laughs) (laughs) Did you find a similar thing with, you know, studying and learning then? Because, I I mean, a lot of people would say that, you know, they're, they're cast in a you know a Disney movie. They you know the acting career is looking promising. Um, most people wouldn't wouldn't go to study. But what was it about you that that craved that? Are you a lifelong learner? Do do you love learning? Yeah, I do. I'm a lifelong a lifelong student. I really love education, and I, honestly, because I grew up quote unquote poor, right? Uh, it's time is a luxury, and time is something that is so expensive. And because I had to spend so much of my time surviving, I really envy people that have the luxury of thriving in an environment. And education comes with thriving. If you're not worried about how much food you're going to eat or getting the well water, you can read a book. And so when I got the opportunity, when my family got back on their feet in, in America a little bit, and we got to a place where we were financially secure and my parents were doing great like they killed it in their industry and provided a safe environment for my brother and I to start asking questions. I realized that education and I was behind, I felt I was behind because I had spent so many of my formative years trying to figure out if how to stand on a bread ration line or, you know, you're just busy trying to make it. So I think that's where my, drive for education and better self-betterment um, comes from because so I feel like I'm constantly just the kid that's trying to catch up still uh, but I love it and I love education I like learning more and there's a quote by Sophia Bush that she just um, dropped on a podcast for Goop and she said everyone talks about how short life is they're like oh life is so short but no one talks about how long it is too and it is long so to limit yourself, be like, oh, I don't have time or I'm not making enough time to read a book or go to school. Like right now, I'm 30, almost four. I would love to go back to university. would literally love it. I would love to go sit in like a, a lecture hall and listen to a professor about anything, like astronomy. I don't care. I'm like, tell me more. Like I think it's fun. Uh, if nothing else, then it's a good conversation starter when you're at the bar. I don't know. You mentioned the hardships and the transition which you went through to get you and that sort of all or nothing mindset which your parents instilled in you. What are some of the other lessons which you've learned from your parents? Oh my goodness. I mean, I could write a book. I am writing a book um, about the lessons that my parents have instilled in me. My biological father is a very complicated intellectual 
genius. But with that comes, you know, it's a fine gray line. Uh, that the genius and the madness of it all. So he taught me art, and he's an incredible painter. And he never he doesn't see anything in a linear way, which is complicated when you're living in a society. But also, like that's where most brilliant art comes from, right? Where everything's just a little off, and you have a different perspective of life. So I'm really grateful for my biological father for that. My mother has a sense of curiosity. My mother lives with childish enthusiasm and the curiosity of like a five-year-old, which I do not see in a lot of adults. So anything, if she has a question, she's like, oh, I wonder, like, when I go take a walk with her in Beverly Hills, she'll look at some kind of tree and be like, I wonder what that tree is. And then take out her phone and like ask Suri in Russian, like what kind of tree that is. So many of us, if we have a question, we're like, meh, you know, and you kind of like brush it aside and she takes the time to stop and be like, oh, I want to know, and discover, and that ability to discover and that infatuation with it not only keeps her young, she's the sexiest, like, 55-year-old you'll ever see, so youthful and fresh and alive and engaged in life versus my mother taught me how to live my life and be an active participant versus allowing life to happen, and I'm just coincidentally there. Could, so I think that's yeah. it. Could could you talk more about that about being an active participant? What what does that look like? Is it just a case of, you know, trying to like seize the day type thing? Is that what you mean? I mean that's hard, but sometimes seizing the day means you're pouring glasses you know, yourself a glass of scotch and like sitting down in front of a piece of paper and being like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> seize the day kinda <laughs> according to the day. Sometimes if I shower, I'm like I biggest accomplishment today. I am playing the end. You know? So it doesn't mean you have to like mount you know climb Mount Everest or whatever that is for you and always be positive and like on top of it. No, season the day means it means testing the waters of of the, the ocean of that day. Like what what are the waves looking like today? What can I handle today? Is it safe enough for me to go paddle out there? Or am I gonna drown? And then just knowing yourself well enough in those circumstances be like today is the day where I need to do self love or today is the day where I need to be outside more or today I really need to kick my own ass and get stuff done or I just cry in my bed for an hour and that's okay um so I yeah I feel like a lot of the times we're trying to beat being human or beat the emotions of humanity and so seizing the day for me just is enjoying the humanity of being human it is gift to be a human so enjoy the messiness of it all and and not be so hard on yourself when you think it's falling apart, because probably it is, and that's okay. Things need to be, you know, broken in order to be put back together better, usually. How do you deal when they are falling apart? You said that you went through hardships. What, what are some of the ways? Oh my which... God. I don't even know. I'm going to close the door. My gardener's like leaf blowing. <laughs> um, let's see, what do I do? I mean, it depends on the hardships. The hounds of love came from a horrible hardship in my life, and I turn it into art which is kind of cool. Um, I wrote Hounds of Love after I lost uh, a baby. I had a miscarriage with my partner. And I was so heartbroken. A child. Um, our potential child that you're excited about. And instead of... Um, 
I couldn't read. I, did, I couldn't feel like I could reach out to him because it was such a heavy subject matter, right? And it it does happen in a woman's body, so it's hard to connect with your partner and be like, all of this is happening. And although I, I never want to discredit a man when they also lose the potential of a child and they go through a miscarriage, because clearly you guys are going through your own mourning, right, of being a father and the potential of that. But it's in my body, so it's just. I felt like it's hard for a man to be like, what are, you, you feel helpless, Eric. What am I supposed to do? What can I help? And instead of putting him in that position, cause he's an actor as well. And he was on a big movie set at the time. Uh, I just started writing him love letters. And the hounds of love are 18 love letters that I wrote him. And that's it. And then I bound them and I asked his permission like a year later uh, if I can print them because people start, I had my friends come over and they would read my poetry and they're like, Oh, these are beautiful. So the hounds of love were just letters that I mailed him and then we bound them and made them into a book. So for me, when I go through a hardship, I just kind of, I really sink into love because that's the only part of my life that makes sense. I mean, there's really, same with acting, like if I have a crying scene, no matter what my character is going through, I can't cry from sad things at all. Like you were like, oh, dead puppies, I'm like I don't feel anything. <laughs> I'm just like, it's not a thing. And so I'll, I'll take my character and, and I'll break down to everything that they love. And, or um, say my cameraman's really close to me or um, my director's right there. I'll have my director hold my hand and I ask them to tell me three things. You are safe, you are loved, and everything's going to be okay. And then if I hear them say that, all of a sudden the environment, which can be really chaotic, right, and hard. There's 200 people staring at you. There's cameras, there's lights. You're sweating through your makeup. Your character's about to like have this emotional breakdown, and then they go, go, action, and you're supposed to just, like, just have a mental breakdown in two seconds, you're like, that's a lot of pressure. It's not fun. It's like life. There's a lot of pressure sometimes. But if I can blanket it in love and security and safety, then I can just have fun. I can become a child and children play. So I think that's what I do. If I have a hardship, I somehow make it either into art, love, or play. While we're on the subject of the homes of love, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is I imagine when anyone writes poetry it, you have to take a very self-reflective stance and look at yourself and dig deep in, into your heart and your mind and um, the one thing I wanted to ask you is were there any things that you learned or discovered about yourself through the through that writing process honestly I wrote the hands of love with like a bottle of scotch like <laughs> you they say write drunk edit sober so, um, yeah, and the, the circumstances of my life were not, like, peachy. I just lost, like, a child. I was just, like, wait, I was lost, like, the possibility of a baby, and I was so sad. Um, and I think maybe that's what I learned. It's, like, even at the, the bottom the pit of my despair, and um, I realized that I have so much more love to give. And I became a poet because of that circumstance. And I never knew that. I never thought in the, I've always been writing since I was a child, since I was like 12. I always had a daily journal. I write every day. But the idea of being like, oh, here you go, world, have my words, was never something that came to my mind. And it's actually quite terrifying. And 
And it's the most naked I've ever been in an art project or an art form in my life because it's just me, right? Uh, so I, I guess I also learned that I'm terrified to show the world who I actually am. And maybe that's why I'm an actor. <laughs> I portray other people. Um, so yeah, I think I learned those two. I have a lot of love to get them and I'm real scared. <laughs> Would you say that it's a, a good thing for people to, to make themselves vulnerable at times like that? I think it's the best. I think it's the only thing. You should always be vulnerable. It's hard in this planet. It's hard on Earth to be that vulnerable because then you're obviously going to get hit by other people's egos and their insecurities and you get bruised. And I think a lot of artists are that. We are the the example of how vulnerable a human soul can be just walking around in a flesh body. And that's why we can make art, but that's why a lot of us are also tortured or have complicated lives. But I think it's beautiful. And if the more people are open like that, I think the more we see that we have everything in common. And if we are associating with one another in a more balanced way like that, maybe there'll be less hate. One of the themes which I've noted so far is when talking about the hardships and the things which we all go through, the shared humanities, you know, the, the human experience, if you will. Something I've always wondered, and, and people have asked this, and I'd love to get your take on this, is what was your uh, what was your way of getting through? What was your way of just not giving up? Essentially, what was your what was your process of of you know just not dwelling in the darkness or going over the precipice of of you know of of believing in a better tomorrow i mean you know the the miscarriage obviously that's that's one of the most heartbreaking things i'm going to go through what was your way of of getting through that of being resilient uh i mean it, well i don't know if i can answer that that honestly just for me to say that like wh- how did i get through it i mean i i didn't i had a support system i don't think you can get through it alone you're not supposed to. I think you need a support system. You need, whether if it's not your family, then make a family. <laughs> you know? Make get your friends. Yeah. <laughs> get your friends. Build a community. I'm not very close with my biological brother, but my brother, quote unquote, my number one person, um, my weird uncle, brother, dad figure, like you want to, he lives in Paris. His name is Scott Bourne. He's a professional skateboarder. This beautiful wife, Caroline, and their two kids, and we've been pen pals for 12 years. I have made a family. I was like, I need a support system. So I made people that could catch me because I am too sensitive and I can't get through it alone and I have no problems admitting that. And when I have too much alone time, then we get a little dangerous, you know? I need people to pull me back up and remind me that I'm great or like, Lisa, you're actually pretty cool. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm cool. Um, but I think, yeah, you need people. And that maybe that's the whole point. And so we learn to lean on each other and build each other up. And life is very much like an anthill, right? We need each other to grow. So Definitely. I'd love to, to take it back. Um, so... When you were studying, back. <laughs> <laughs> I love your guys' accent. So nice. Oh 
Thank you. <laughs> we'll clip that. We'll put that on Instagram. <laughs> we'll put that on Instagram. Very <laughs> for me. It's ten in the morning, boy. <laughs> when uh, you were studying in uh, Paris, so you're doing economics, mm-hmm. uh, and then the high school musical uh, comes along. The the casting for that. Yeah. We were talking before. Um, you were just thinking, you know, the performing arts and economics like i mean that's pretty much as as <laughs> as far away as different planets as one could possibly you know imagine i study some 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 econ so what was it um did did you ever originally plan to go into that field economics or was that just sort of like the the stable the secure path type thing was that what it was the reason i um it's actually kind of funny so High School Musical 1, I was already graduated from high school in America when I shot that. I turned 19. Um, it was like that summer and going into college. And I was highly academic in school because I also knew I, no one was going to pay for my uh, university. And so the only way I was going to go to university, and I'm a big fan of having no debt. I like, I'm a, I like having my wings. I don't like being tied down. So I'm just like, I don't want to have any debt, but I want to go to a really good school. The only way you could do that is to get a full ride scholarship. So I knew that in like eighth grade. So I just hustled. And by the time I got, I graduated uh, high school, I had enough AP credits to kind of skip the first year of school in college. And <laughs> yeah, I was just like, I'm just going to do it. And I got into this university called Westminster um, it's a private private liberal arts school in Utah. It's, very, it's a very fancy schmancy school, but they gave me a full ride, which was great for academics. And um, then I shot High School Musical right before our first semester started. And they paid me $5,000. So for everyone that thinks like I'm just rolling in dough and I've been rich driving my Bentley, no, they gave me five grand. And I was like, great. And I bought a laptop. Because that's what, you know, you need. And with the rest, and I paid for, like, my housing for school. And then I had five more bucks left. And I became, I took a course to become a certified nursing assistant. You work in hospitals and you help nurses. Basically, you, like, bathe people, clean people, help them get ready for the nurse to come in. I'm the grunt worker in the hospital. Because it was the most highest paying job I can get as a student. I paid $9.75 an hour to keep 13 people alive. It's aggressive, but it's fun, you know? <laughs> just... So by the time High School Musical 1 came out, I was working in a hospital, and I was going to school. And the reason I chose economics is I had a double major, economics and business marketing, with a minor in psychology. I love psychology. It's fun. But you, you, you need, like, a master's degree to make any money in that. And so I was like, I'll just do it on the, a little baby psychology degree. And then economics, I love what people do with money. I like to know, because time is money, right? It's your life force. And to see where people invest their life, literally and figuratively, is fascinating to me. Like someone will spend, you know, whatever, $5,000 on a Chanel bag. And I'm just like, what? Tell me why. So I love supply and demand and and seeing people's choices. And maybe that comes from communism and not having a lot of choice especially when it comes to finances because everything was pretty much capped, right? And then business marketing, it also goes with, I like to see how people get influenced to buy supplies and goods and services. Like, why? It's fascinating to me. So, yeah, I was going to work for Clorox. I really wanted to work for Clorox or Dove. 
a really big company like Johnson and Johnson. Cause at the time Dove was coming out with a campaign for the, the true beauty campaign where the women were like all different shapes and sizes. So I wanted to work on that campaign to help people see that even a big giant company like that is, you know, teetering towards a more conscious uh, product and marketing. And Clorox at the time just had launched their green campaign. So they were the first big company to take Clorox. Everyone knows what Clorox is. It's bleach, right? But they were making it um, green. And I wanted to work on that marketing team. But then I was embarrassed. <laughs> studying and I was so poor. I had like no money, guys. I had holes in my shoes. I was so poor. Really happy. Best time of my life. Drank a lot of wine because it was like two euros and um, ate a lot of baguettes, but could not like I didn't go out to dinner one time. Had no money. It was crazy. I think I lived on five hundred dollars a month, which at the time was like two hundred fifty euros, which was like nothing. <laughs> like it was real hard. Um, oh yeah, yeah. But anyway, Kenny Ortega called me, our director of high school musical, and I was stealing internet in an alley because I couldn't afford internet. And I was Skyping him like I am with you guys. And he's like, come back to the States. We're making a second movie. And I was like, Kenny, I don't know. I'm like trying to get my degree. I just got to Paris. Like I've been here for six months. This is my, this is, I was going to stay until I got my degree. I loved France. And, and then I looked at my bank account and I was like, this is looking really sad. And I was going to start like illegally working at a bar or whatever, you know, for cash as one does when you're a student in 19. 20. And, uh, and then the next morning I told Kenny, I would think about it. And then I got in the Metro in the next morning and the whole side was plastered with high school musical. <laughs> and I was like, Fuck, okay. Like if it's chasing me across the country and across like, you know, into Europe, then maybe I should do this. And then I went, I walked through the mall um, someone by the Marais, I don't remember which mall it was, and the girl recognized me. She's like, you're from that show. And I was like, what? And at this time, High School Musical was like my fifth or fourth movie I'd done for Disney Channel, so it wasn't like my first thing, you know? And I was like, okay, but I never thought acting could be a real job. I never thought someone would actually pay me to do a thing I would want to do for free. I basically did it. 5000 is like nothing, right? Like, I was like, sure. Yeah, so then I packed up my semester was up, and I moved back to America under the with the intention that like I'll just shoot this movie and then go back. And then we shot High School Musical two really quickly, like within the month that I came home, and I never went back. It sucks because I had to drop out of school, and I was just like, oh no, but I, could, I didn't have time. The wheels were moving, and that that part of my life was such a a miracle, but also just like a whirlwind of opportunities and a lot of work. And so there's no way you can be it's cool and try to be a part of a franchise like that. It didn't happen. Did you have any idea at the time of, of what it could become? I mean, like you said, it, it was chasing you across continents. I mean, I'm well, we're 23 years old and I, full disclosure, high school was pretty much my entire childhood. Um, oh, thank you. I mean, I, only, it was only a few weeks back. I watched all three movies back to back. Stop. And... Oh, God. <laughs> I'm just like, uh, did thank you, you. Did you have any idea at the time of, 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 of you know, what it was becoming and, and what it could do for your career? Or... No, I mean, because I never thought it was as a career. Hmm. I, you know, I just did it because I loved 
being on set. I love the people on set. I love my grips. I love the electricians. I love seeing the cameras set up. I, I I don't feel any more at home than where I'm on set. And it's them. We're seeing like all my grips, like doing like um, their little cigarette breaks in the corner and seeing the trailers get set up. Like I don't feel happier anywhere else. That is my pure joy. It's not even on set acting. It's like just being in, in it, being on the lot, seeing all the little, you know, the ants that make up this, this project. And the reason for that is it's the only place on the planet that I've experienced where you have like say 200 people on any given day on set from every race, religion, background, you name it working together cohesively to make one art project. And like, if that's not an example that peace is possible, <laughs> I'm just like, there's everyone is so vastly different and everyone's taking care of their own department. And yet we don't kill each other. We live together for like four to six months. It's, we see each other 16 hours a day. It's like aggressive when it comes to commitment, you know? And we all somehow pulled it together to make one thing to make the world happy or entertained or feel something. And being around that, like, there's no bigger joy for me. I just think it's marvelous. But, yeah, I never thought it was a job. I never thought, like, someone would pay me and I could do it. I'm like, what? Okay. So when you get that call from Kenny Ortega, were you thinking – like long term or were you just thinking of it as like a project or were you thinking this could be something which you could do for a long time um so full disclosure i have ptsd post-traumatic stress syndrome so i can't really think of long term and not in that period of my life because my brain didn't go to long-term memories very well so for you like to ask like no i was just like oh cool it's a project i love the people i work with i love being on set I'll go take, <clears throat> excuse me, a little hiatus break, go make a movie. I love making movies. I love my cast. My director's awesome. Um, make a little money so I can continue my education. And, and then it took off, and then it became this beautiful thing. But it was never like, let me grasp this and hold it, and I can see it, and it's going to become this. It was always just like, oh, I'm doing this amazing thing. And tomorrow I might do another amazing thing, but I don't want to hold on to anything in my life too tightly. If you like grasp a little creature, like a little mouse, what does it do? It freaks out, right? It starts squirming around. You could hurt it. But if you like put it in your little pot, sniffs around, it's having fun. It might play with you. It might sit on your shoulder. So I want all my opportunities to be held gently and I want to enjoy them fully, but I don't need to see what they'll become in the future. Maybe that's short sighted or naive, but, it served me pretty well. Maybe when I get older, as I am now, it'll shift and maybe I'll make some plans for the future that are a little bit more concrete. But right now I'm just like, okay, cool. I'm enjoying this. I'm still here. Um, I've worked a lot on my PTSD, so I am making long-term memories now, which is really awesome. Uh, but if you ask me, like, it's so sad because I'll meet fans like you guys or people are like, oh, do you remember this? And I'm like, I have no idea what. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> so yeah, that's a little crushing. You're like, remember this scene? I'm like, nope, <laughs> don't or anything. When you type uh, your name into Google, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because we've already shattered the piano illusion. 
Um, one of the things that comes up is uh, your your heavy involvement with charities. Yeah, that's true. There we go. So, so we found through this podcast that uh, mm-hmm. the majority of successful people we talk to, they all preach the importance of helping other people first. Do you feel as though helping others is fun a fundamental part of you and what does it do for you on a person personal level on, on a human nature level uh giving to charities whatever that is for you whether it's just volunteering at a food bank or helping the old lady across the street you know like it doesn't have to be so complicated you don't have to join greenpeace i think it's an energetic exchange with the universe if you want, you have to give. That's just how it works. And for some people, sometimes you can take and take and take and take. But usually what happens, like they crash, they burn, something horrible happens. Like it, You know, it, it's just things will always realign to a balance and a yin-yang in life. So instead of waiting for it to sway one direction to another, just be in alignment with that. And I, I do believe it's the most fun I have is when I, like, buy presents for a charity for Christmas or something, you know? Like, that's the most fun. You're like, ooh, cool. Um, I just, my mother and I give to this uh, retirement home in Russia that's funded by the government, but it's more, we call them, like, the lost generation because maybe their their kids don't take care of them or they don't have any grandkids, and they're all elderly. They're 80 and up, but no one comes visits them. And so we all dress up as Santa Claus and Father Frost and, we show up and we're like, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> we do this skit and we sing really poorly and we give them presents. And it's the best part of my winter probably is knowing that I was a part of that. And and it makes you kind of immortal when you help others. They have stories about you, being of your kindness. And then they tell stories of kindness. And then we all kind of live on in a way that is beautiful. That makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like what Gandhi said, where he said, if you want to be happy, make other people happy. Yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. But I do believe you got to fill your own cup before you start sharing. Like, definitely fill your own cup. Don't be like, oh, okay, I'll give part of my savings, and you don't have a savings. You're like, no, 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 no. Make sure you're stable. And the more stable you are, the more you can give. Like, look at Oprah. She's like, yes, I am Oprah. And then everybody gets a car. You know, <laughs> like, that's my dream. I'm like, I want to be like Oprah. Um, no, but I want to have the capacity to be like, oh, let me change your life and your life and your life. But you need to study finance in order to do that. You know how to balance everything in your life in order to have that much power. And that's the good kind of power. For sure, for sure. One thing I'd love to ask you is, in your particular field, in, you know, the performing arts and whatnot, you, you know, the uh label yourself as the creative entrepreneur and you're involved in you know various different fields one thing that i would i'd imagine obviously is what we experience as well in the field of entrepreneurship is that there's a lot of uncertainty there's a lot of you know will this project happen will this will this will this you know it is difficult to really plan these things how do you deal with with uncertainty I sweat through a lot of clothes. I don't know. <laughs> it's like the older I get, the more I'm like, oh my god. Uh, you know, it it just does you. It doesn't ever get easier. Ever. 
I'm never not nervous. Every audition I go into, I'm violently ill. Like, <laughs> sweat literally dripping down the sides of my body, being, being like, Elisa, you've been doing this for 21 years. Pull it together. And I just can't. And I think those are with the opportunities, too. Like, you write a book of poems. You hope people buy them. And it's like, oh, okay, here I go. Every time you try something new, of course, there's, you know, there's odds that it might not work. But, um... I like to believe that the odds are in your favor yeah. and everything. The odds are in your favor. The, the, you know, just the chances that you're alive. There's like 4 million sperm and you're the one that made it. Congratulations. Way <laughs> 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 back. Like odds are in your favor that you're going to be just fine. <laughs> like pretty resilient. Um, yeah. If you just, I think there's that. I mean, of course I have my low days when I'm like, oh my God, I haven't worked for six months. No one loves me, blah, blah, blah. I suck. And then there's a cloud of gray. Like I become Eeyore in my mind, you know? Externally, I'm like, everything's fine, Grace. I'm great. Internally, I'm like dying slowly. Um, But what's the alternative? Not trying? What's the alternative? Not having, yes, a little bit of turmoil. No one said that squeezing the, the fruit to get the juice is going to be easy. It's not. Um, it does weigh on you a little bit more when you get older and you do want a little bit more stability and you do crave a little, like a breath, you know? That definitely gets harder. But I think this is just the life I signed up for, so I don't see any other way. One thing I'd love to pull you back to is you said that you've been doing this for 21 years. I know, crazy. You've been doing this for 21 years and you turn up to auditions and you're still, you know, sweating through clothes. (laughs) How do you act through that fear? How do you tell yourself to get through something that you're afraid of doing? Um, At this point, I have like a little mantra I say in my head. And it's really silly but I had a therapist once tell me to do it and I've been using it ever since. And it goes like this, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. <laughs> and I just do a little dance. I'm like, you're the best, you're the best. And it's not to degrade anyone else's performance, but it's to kill the voice in my head that's like, well, you might not be good enough. And if I do a little like dance and I sing it a little way, then it's, it almost makes that voice shut up. And then I breathe. I do a breathing technique before I go in, which changes everything. I just take um, like seven second inhales and exhales like one, two, or five, or how much you can lung capacity you can handle. Just like as long as you do three sets of those, like four seconds in, four seconds out, and your entire body will just calm. And then I remind myself that this is fun. I have chosen to be here. No one makes me go to audition rooms. No one makes you be an entrepreneur. No one makes you, like, leverage your entire savings account for, like, a business, right? No, this is a choice. So I'm like, oh, I choose to be here. This is fun. And then usually I go in there and nail it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You know, yeah. it's, it's funny because a few months back, I signed up for a for a Latin and ballroom dance competition. Not a boy. And like before it, I said, like I said myself, I was like, this is the thing which I'm like most afraid of in the world. Like I've never, like apart from being trashed in a nightclub, (laughs) I've never danced before. 
So I, I like rehearsed like crazy for this, and I, I like had no nerves. I had it down. I thought it was gonna be amazing, and then on the night just before I'm about to go out, I've I can honestly say that was the most nervous I've ever felt in my entire life. And, Did you uh, your clothes? I know, I know. <laughs> I was definitely sweating through my clothes. I had makeup on as well, and the makeup was running, and. Uh, like your way, like I wish we'd had this conversation because before I went out, because my way of dealing with it was just picking up the pint of beer and just. <laughs> neck and... Does not help. No, it didn't. It didn't help. Um, but yeah, it was it was as an experience. So, but yeah, but I'll I will definitely remember that you are the best dance. Well, thank you. Think, yeah, think. Congrats on trying something new, and it makes you terrified, and like, that's awesome. It's like the best feeling in the world, especially like the things which we're most afraid of. As long as it's not like something which could potentially kill us, then you know I say go for it. In the the most incredible people in this business that I've met, I've I've been so blessed to meet these humans. One of which is my my current partner, um, my life partner is amazing, and he's a very fancy schmancy executive at um, Interscope Sound, like music, like everybody you know, Eminem, all the people, Lady Gaga, and. He'll go and pitch like ideas and he's just as nervous and he's been doing it for 20 years. And I'm like, and you don't even have to be nervous. You're like kind of like a badass and like people, you know, people respond to you and you tell them what to do and you're kind of the top of your game and you're nervous and he'll be like, I don't know what I'm doing. People are going to find out that I don't know what I'm doing. And so I think you have to keep that in mind too. We all have like a little bit of like imposter syndrome and and being like, oh my gosh, I'm not great at that. But there's so many other people that are less talented than you. They have way less resources. They have also less fucks to give, and that's what's making them successful. So you know, they're like, meh, and they just go for it. Yeah, that's it. You know, it's like everybody, you know, like feels the fear at some point. But you know, it's like. I, I remember I heard a parable before and it was like the hero and the coward, they both feel the same amount of fear. It's just the hero actually does it anyway. Yeah. You know, and I think that's so true. So this has been an amazing, amazing conversation and we've got ourselves a clip for the gram, but we can't <laughs> let you go. <laughs> we've got four questions which are non-specific, which shouldn't take too long to okay. ask you just to wrap this up. And the first is we always ask the guest that comes on to issue us and our Freedom Pack family a challenge that you would like to set for us based on whatever you see in the world. My challenge would be for you guys and audience to, for one week to not say anything out loud that is self-deprecating. I love it. And see how that changes your life, but also everyone around them, around you. It's really fascinating. It's a fun little science experiment. Amazing. Our second question is, um, obviously, The Hounds of Love. And, and you mentioned you, you're working on a, a, another book. Um, it's going to impact you know, m- many people's lives. But are there any books that you've read throughout your life that you can say have impacted you at all? Um, yes. I actually have them here. The War... Of Steven art, Brassfield, yeah. It's a good one. If yeah. you're having a little writer's block, or you're having an artistic moment, and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Read it. It's a short read. It just kind of revamps you, and you, you don't feel alone as an artist. Like everyone's oh, yeah. resistance and support. <laughs> See, chapter <laughs> one. It's great. 
Um, there's also, this is called the mind projections and multiple facets. And this is by my, um, Yogi Bijan. Do you know who that is? You should look at so. Great. He's a Kundalini teacher and, uh, like a, a healer and an incredible, he's passed away, but he's an incredible man. Was an incredible man is an incredible man. So the mind, his book is really wonderful because it helps unlock some of the challenges that we face just being human. The Story of O by Pauline Rouget. It's a French erotica. Oh. <laughs> of the best books I've probably read in my life. It's really fascinating, and it's not erotica like Fifty Shades of Grey. It's like it makes you challenge your own ideas about what it is to be um, dominant, submissive, and human, and what is sexuality and sensuality. It's a really interesting book, and it's yeah, it was written by a woman in a time when women were not allowed to obviously write books and pretty controversial story of a really good one. Scott, my pen pal gave that to me when I was 19. Wow. And this is my last one. And it's called the hidden life of trees. And this book is phenomenal. It's by David. Uh, hold on. I tell you, hold on. There's a lot of, there's a, it's like a research book. So there's a bunch of people, but Hmm. The foreword is by Peter Walhemberg. I'm going to slaughter all these people. But look up The Hidden Life of Trees. It's really interesting. So this is kind of a science book. But it connects uh, us to, to trees and how they communicate and how they talk and how it's not dissimilar at all to people. It's very much like Avatar, but the science behind Avatar. You're like, wait, what? This is what they actually do. It's fascinating. You'll never look at trees, shrubs ever the same again. You're like, no, they're alive. And you know what they're doing in their root system. It's fascinating. Can I just say how, how much I appreciate the fact that you've prepared that answer because it catches a lot of people out. And the fact that you had the books on hand, we appreciate that a lot. <laughs> no problem. Like these ones. Yeah, they're great. I'll email you all of them. They're great. Uh, I'm sure that there have been many, but what rules do you or have you loved to break in your life I think being an immigrant hmm. and being a woman and also being little I'm only 5'2 so 5 feet 2 inches I'm little and so being a small woman and an immigrant having these giant eyeballs and it kind of looked childlike because I, I do have big eyes and I'm little and a smart small frame so for people to tell me that they, I can't do something, I'm like, okay, <laughs> watch. Sure so, yeah, I think breaking people's expectations of what I can and can't do in one lifetime has been probably some of my biggest joy. I'm like, oh, remember that last year when you told me I couldn't be a poet? It's weird. <laughs> like, yeah, stuff like that. And also, um, what is something that I enjoy breaking? Probably my own limitations. It's not even societal limitations. It's like societal limitations that I put in my own head, convolute, and make into this bigger monster. I like breaking that monster down because it's not society's fault. It's my fault. I should be more conscious. I should be more in control of my own emotions, my own illusions in my mind. That's No one has power over me. My limitations, it's me. The last question we have is... Um... Imagine a scenario in which every person in the world is tuned into the same frequency 
and you are given the opportunity to broadcast a short but impactful message and everyone in the world is going to hear what you have to say every single person i'm like sweating pressure (laughs) (laughs) what would alicia's message to the world be in a time of crisis hold your neighbor's hand Remember that we all do bleed the same. Global warming is real. I suggest everyone become a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> and when when possible, simply enjoy your life. That's amazing. Where can, <laughs> where can our Freedom Pack family connect with you? And do you have any asks of our audience? so sweet thanks guys um just i'm kind of like old and tired so i usually just do instagram and twitter all the other things just like overwhelm me and i can't keep up so dm me i actually answer a lot of them and uh if you have a cool question yeah just dm me and i like doing those like q a answering things on the stories i really love engaging with my audience so dm me leave a comment i definitely will respond you can email me go to my website drop me an email if you have a question um, or then, or just tweet me, which I'm not as active on, but I'll still get to it eventually. Um, everything will be linked below, so if whoever's listening, they can just swipe up on this episode, and you will be able to connect with Alicia oh. straight away. I, okay. So, so yeah. So from Lewis and myself, this has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, there's you know, so much gold in this conversation. So oh, we can't you. thank you enough for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for reaching out. I was so flattered. I told my partner, I was like, I want to meet me on a podcast. It's so cool. (laughs) I'm always shocked. I'm like, huh, okay. Life opportunities that come are always blessings. So thank you, gentlemen. Have a wonderful evening.